John Cole is the director of the Center for the Book in the Library of Congress and also a historian. I write about history and its culture. And you've worked for the library for? 40 years. I came as a young administrative intern in 1966. So life is just beginning. <laughs> Correct. So what have you done? Uh, my books are mostly on the history of the Library of Congress. My most recent one, which I co-edited and had 70 people helping, is an, it's called the Encyclopedia of the Library of Congress. It was published last year. It's a 550-page reference book about the Library of Congress for libraries. It really is intended in part for the Library of Congress employees to learn about their institution in the hopes that uh, others will be as interested in learning the contributions of the Library of Congress to culture as well as to librarianship and to government and to you know, American life and culture. In a nutshell, can you tell us what it is? The Library of Congress, what is it meant to the cultural, political life of the United States? Well, the United States, it's a unique institution that brings together the government with the broader culture, and it does it by being part of the legislative branch. It's quite unique. No other American cultural, major cultural institution is in the legislative branch. The Library of Congress, by working directly with Congress and getting our money from Congress, takes advantage of what Thomas Jefferson said to the Congress when he sold his private library in 1815 after the British had come into town and destroyed the Capitol where the little library of Congress was housed. Jefferson said, Congress, you should buy my library. He couldn't give it at, the, at that stage. It was in a financial crisis. You should buy my library, which has books in all topics and five different languages because there is no subject to which a member of Congress may not have occasion to refer, meaning with this young country, uh, with the West in front of us and the future ahead of it, it could no longer have its major resource books uh, be confined to law and government. It needed to have the science and the literature and the philosophy and the books in other languages. And this is what his... Uh, this is that, what... This that Monte, where Monticello. Monticello. Well, no, that it was in Monticello. It's now here. So, they, our, so uh, he said, uh, I'm in rough shape. It just got well, burnt. I well, want in, money. well, in part, it was a little... We're playing him... He's a little more inspirational than that. He was the president from 1801 until 1809. He watched this little library grow, and, of course, he was a bibliophile. And he expanded forever the scope of the Library of Congress but it was left to future librarians of Congress to say, while this is Congress's library, we want to take the other side of the Jefferson concept of universality. In other words, Jefferson said you need all these subjects. Mm -hmm. Jefferson also said you need to make this collection useful uh, for the sake of our citizens. We need a better informed citizenry in order to make our democracy work. And so there are two parts to this. It's universal collection widely shared. So originally, then, uh, you know, it, the name suggests this is a library for members of Congress that's as right. they're looking to learn uh, about what the, the world at large may be doing about certain issues or topics that, that would affect their legislation. 
That's right. And it was it's a research library in that sense. There's a huge branch, 800 people. Library of Congress is around 4,200 to 300 people. One of the big components goes back to that original purpose. So they're, they're at the beck and call of the congressman well, and whomever who... Well, of course, yes, they are, but they, they would tell you that they're trying to guess ahead of time what Congress is going to be interested in and doing research way ahead of time. So there's a foreign affairs division, there's a government division, and they serve as a research tank and so uh, it's not reference just library. It's not, not just storing. No, no, it's no. no it's a gr- and they work with the committees, and so they represent that original purpose of the library. But Jefferson's collection in the other subjects represents the expanded purpose. And Jefferson said, and then a librarian named Spofford at the turn of the century took Jefferson's rationale and said, this great congressional collection needs to be shared with the American people. I'm going to make this the National Library with the idea that Congress is sharing its collection with the American people, which is the most democratic way of putting it, and that's what Spofford meant. But I've got to convince Congress to give me a new building. What he first he did was he centralized copyright over in the Capitol building in 1870. So we had this Jefferson collection, this little collection, that gradually grew, and then there was a huge fire in the Capitol in 1851, and two-thirds of Jefferson's books were destroyed along with two-thirds of the rest of the library. So we still had 2,000 Jefferson books, however. Then Spofford centralized copyright in a way to build a national library. That means that the Library of Congress became the central copyright repository and record keeper of creativity in our country. It's like the uh, the ISBN uh, designation, except much earlier than that. You had to always... When you published anything, it was you had was it the law that you had to it, provide. The law was you gave the Library of Congress two copies for free, and it wasn't just books; it was maps, and it was prints, and other materials. And gradually, it became motion pictures. So we have these enormous motion picture, multimedia collections, music, largest music collection in the country, a map collection, and it's all started with Spofford concentrating copyright here and then yelling for help. The help had to be a separate building and he got that, which is our wonderful Jefferson building. So suddenly, just to carry this one step further, we were sharing Congress's collection with the American people. In the next century, once we had the Jefferson building, there was another very ambitious librarian named Herbert Putnam from the Putnam Publishing family. He was a librarian for 40 years. And he was the first professional, not professional, but experienced librarian to hold the job. Spofford wasn't. Spofford was a newspaper man who loved books and libraries. But Putnam said, okay, we've got the building, we've got Spofford's beginnings, but Spofford felt the National Library should be a huge pile of American literature and people should come to Washington, D.C. to the Jefferson Building, now the Jefferson Building, to use it. Putnam said, that's not enough. We, to be a real national library, we have to start serving not only Congress and the members of the public and the copyright community, which brought publishers into the picture, and the federal government, which we did, all as a, all as a legislative uh, branch government. We have to serve other libraries and start providing the bibliographic data. And Putnam installed a, went to the government printing office and installed a printing press in the Library of Congress to start churning out those three-by-five printed cards that had the cataloging information on them. So we started centralized cataloging. 
Then he said, that's still not enough. We should be a world library. We need to compete with the British Museum Library and the Bibliothèque Nationale. And he started gathering materials from around the world. So we became gradually an international library, a world library, uh, all growing out of that Jeffersonian concept of sharing this expanded collection with not just Congress, the American people, but now the world. Then the irony, it's not an irony, but it's interesting now in the age of the internet with the Library of Congress's huge digitization programs and the sharing of our collections in yet a different way, mm. which is via the internet. The Librarian of Congress, you know, is technically, you know, right in the, not technically, he's actually in the middle of this whole crisis going on with intellectual property and what the internet is doing to the rights and the sh not only of the authors, but we want to share things as widely as possible. So the librarians are howling on one side and the publishers are howling on the other side and it's the whole... Yeah, let's look at that because it's crucial, isn't it, to, to our age right now. And that is the Library of Congress houses every book that's been... No. We not every well, book that's been published, but, but not even every book here in the United States. We grew so fast. Spofford centralized copyright in 1870 over in the capital. What did you mean by copyright back then? Books came, and a huge office to keep track of copyright but was let's developed. Get, but uh, why did they do that? To get the deposits. He wanted the free collections. In other words, he did that strictly. So he, he wanted can to get build the free books. Free books and maps. And but you're calling and it copyright. It is co it's copyright deposit is different from copyright registration. Okay. Spofford really wanted the deposits, but in order to do it, he had to take on the registration. He needed So he needed to get legislation that said that every book that's published in the United, United States, States as a condition of copyright, if you want it to be copyright, you have to send two copies to the Library that's of Congress. That's right, and that lasted until 1909. And by then, we moved into the Jefferson Building. Mr. Putnam uh, said, we're flooded. We got to slow this down. Mm -hmm. And so the copyright was loosened. And the Library of Congress was no longer required to keep two copies of everything. We had the right to keep them. And if we didn't keep them, they would go either to other libraries or go off into storage for a certain number of years. So our collections are comprehensive for materials copyrighted in the United States only between 1870 and 1909, unlike the British system, where material goes in all of the time. And it continues to do and so. And continues to do so. Right. Yeah. In 1909, there then must have been some mechanism that was agreed upon to determine which books are going to go into the Library of Congress and which weren't. Correct. And that's when this whole series of selection policies started to be developed. And there are huge notebooks now, I'm sure, available online saying, okay, history, what are we taking? What are we concentrating on? Well, we obviously we want American history, but uh, do we want it all? Do we want books that authors had published themselves? So there's a whole way we look at vanity press. It's different from trade mm -hmm. publications. It's a question of merit. So who determines the merit? Uh, well, it's we come down on the comprehensive side. It's not as I wouldn't phrase it that way. I think I would say what is of possible value for research in the future. If you're talking about nonfiction, fiction, who knows? With nonfiction, who determines whether or not a particular 
biography would go in or not go in? Well, if it were published uh, by a reputable publisher, this is the old-fashioned way of looking at it, it we'd, probably keep, we'd probably keep two copies. What, what are you going to take out? I mean, the bins come in, 800,000 volumes come in every year. So what aren't you taking? Well, we're yeah. taking out when we can identify it. I'm just making some of this up, but I'm not completely up to date. But Vanity Press, we just keep a selection of children's books. We don't keep them as comprehensively. We select. Mm. Uh, cookbooks are selected. So, so a number what about history? You take every single bit of history? No, no we don't. No, but, but we so would take who, most history. But who says it's that's other, good, that's not good? Uh, the guidelines are in these notebooks, and the selection officers just do it automatically. They so say, there's no subjective subjectivity here? Well, of course there is. There has to be. They have to say, oh, we've, seen, we've been seeing this for the last ten years. We've seen stuff from this publisher or these authors or... I can't imagine that we need more than one of these, or we don't really need these. Well, yeah, but what, if it's a new work, though, I mean, if you've got the same author doing a new work, do you automatically accept it or not? Uh, that would be up to the selection officer. Uh, they probably have a prejudice in favor of an author. I mean, but if it's a first book, it's it's a little different. Um, do they? Does someone have to read it and then say, okay? They don't read them. They don't they, read they, them. They look at them. They look uh, at the cover. They the, judge Well, the and they the know a lot of the authors. Well, we're talking enormous volume. I think you're making too much of it because if you look at through the years, you know, there's very little you're going to find that we've deliberately excluded that would catch the general public eye. But we look at it in different ways, and your point also is, is a good one in that, you know, we can't go on forever with space. And we have now filled these three buildings, but we have a new solution, and that is there's now a new Library of Congress North that's being built at Fort Meade, Maryland for storage of paper materials. And Congress has authorized over a dozen huge warehouses, two of which are up. And we are now, for the very first time, uh, moving off of Capitol Hill for some of the storage. We have no more space, and there'll be no more to think about a library having these three huge buildings right on, at the seat of American power yeah. is quite incredible. And there is a audiovisual research center which will be our storage area for the motion picture collections in Culpeper, Virginia. And this is in part privately funded by David Packard. And it's a mountain that used to be a, a storage for the Federal Reserve Bank that's now being retrofitted for the Library of Congress. And our motion picture collections and a lot of our laboratories will go there. The library has huge preservation laboratories. I was going to say, I mean, part, obviously the, the mandate then is to preserve the original mm, objects as well as the con the content. But the thing is with... Well, we're less a museum than more so of a library. It's more content. We have yeah, a lot of objects, say, but, you know... Yeah, I was going to say, though, that doesn't... With the advent of uh, this scanning technology, wouldn't that mean that you could then get rid of a whole bunch of stuff? Uh, not necessarily. You know about our controversy with newspapers, and for many years the Library of Congress and the British Museum assumed that in order to microfilm newspapers, which of course are bulky. I mean, the idea was to film them and not to hang on to the originals mm -hmm. and destroy them. And do you know about the controversy with Nicholson Baker, who's written a oh, whole a book? He's a pithy nonfiction writer and critic of libraries and librarians and archivists for destroying the originals. 
and now more and more libraries are not destroying the originals. We're both filming, but also hanging on and going into the storage facilities. A lot of the material that you know was originally intended for the scrap heap. Well, again, it's the question of what is the purpose of the library? Is it to, to preserve these objects, or is it to serve as a repository it's for both. its content? And yes. we, you know, have if you see the mission of the Library of Congress, you see it on the walls as you go around, mm -hmm. and it's to preserve and share this unparalleled collection that we have the privilege of taking care of and sharing. But we are eager to make certain that the U.S. government through the legislative branch continues to support us generously, which they really have, much more generously than other governments have supported what in equiv are equivalent institutions in the British Library is a prime example where... How does that help you then? How, how has it helped this, the, the Library of Congress? Well, financially, we are, I mean, it's helped us enormously in terms of having adequate support, and with adequate support we can pursue this mission of maintaining a universe and sharing what we now say is a universal collection right out of Jefferson. We are not restricted to a ge particular subjects or particular geographic areas. Uh, I mean, the Australian National Library now, because of financial crises, has had to say we are really concentrating on the geographic area around us. You know, we. Library of Congress doesn't do that. We I was going to say Australia can, can, can say that now because there's the Library of Congress. Well, in part. because So you ask what the overall uniqueness is. It is this universal collection and it's this big ambition you know, mm -hmm. to share these collections. And you know, someone like Dr. Billington, Dr. Borston, who created the Center for the Book, I mean, they are very ambitious and some would say idealistic. Uh, in pursuit just, of this just like mission. Just founding fathers. <laughs> well, it's true. Yes, they share that. And so there's not, uh, they both they think, think big. They think very big and have never drawn boundaries and have taken on the task, which is a democratic task from a different angle, of educating our own legislators about the treasures and the potential that they hold in this library. Mm -hmm. Librarian of Congress, and this is again one of the unique elements that shaped the institution. For some reason, <laughs> we'd have to go back to the founding fathers, but the president was given the power to hire the librarian. So you immediately are into sharing, which then meant that the rest of the government was drawn in and we started serving all of the agencies. And suddenly Congress in 1896, the building was ready to open and they said, hey, what have we here? we'd better have hearings about what the purpose of this Library of Congress is. That's the way it works. And so suddenly the experts came in to testify. Mr. Putnam was at that time the librarian of the Boston Public Library. And again, Melville Dewey, the same Melville Dewey, were two of the seven, yeah, two of the seven experts who brought in, and they were brought in, and they both agreed, something I've already alluded to, this is a great opportunity for this country but a national library, and everyone called it a national library for that brief period, uh, should be serving other libraries. That's the only chink in this armor. And if you're going to put money into this, we want American libraries to benefit from the services of this new national institution. Putnam, though, started interlibrary loan, and the interlibrary loan means other libraries can borrow. That's, That's the, the way it would serve, serve. Yeah. yeah. In addition to doing all of the technical work for other libraries through centralized cataloging and 
really for the world. I mean, British Mark, I mean, a lot of these systems that librarians use were developed then as Library of Congress uh, for our collections, but we share them with the world. So there's an intellectual endeavor going on, bibliographically speaking. The Library of Congress helped develop systems of not only knowledge through our own classification system. Melville Dewey came and tried to get Mr. Putnam to use the Dewey system here. And he wouldn't do it. He says, this is going to be a major research library. It's also going to be open to the public. But the research library classification has to be based on this universal collection. And we're going to start again and do our own system, which was based on modification of a different system developed by a man named Charles Cutter. But the real point is that we are looking at ourselves as a separate entity and while we're going to share our system with others, it's got to be adapted and useful for this unique collection. The wide that's right, this wide collection that's a in standard all, for, the, and for in, the whole world. And it's in all formats. It's not just books. In fact, the book collection is smaller. If we have 140 million items, only maybe 30 million are books. But the rest are manuscripts and maps and music and prints and photographs. And it's these special format collections that also have come under copyright law, I mean, eventually. The, the motion picture collection, all of the films, Edison films came in as copyright deposits, as paper prints. And then we developed a project to convert those prints into film. And we've got all of Edison's films. I mean, if you want to ever have a chance while you're here to go back to go through the American Treasures exhibit in the Jefferson Building, which is up on the second floor. It's carefully selected items to give you a sense of this scope and the fact that we're, we're more than books. And I say that as the director of the Center for the Book. We it's don't care about anything other than the book. <laughs> so it's the audiovisual, you know, multimedia age. The Library of Congress, obviously, was a pioneer in as you say, cataloging and automation, and, and then digitiz and now digitiz and now digitization. And Congress, in fact, has given the Library of Congress very generous appropriations to take the lead in digitizing not only our collections, but capturing uh, what's happening on webs. We're collecting websites now for our collections. Again, what it, what you're doing is you're capturing the intellectual activity of the world, aren't you? That's and, right. And you did it with the book, you're doing it with the motion picture, and now you're capturing websites just because this mandate of capturing intellectual activity. That's right. On the broadest possible scope. And as a historian, I'm hard-pressed to find functions that the Library of Congress has given up. The blind is a perfect example. That's its whole separate wonderful story. started with the reading room in the Jefferson Building when we have the photos in one of my books of Alexander Graham Bell. I mean, the reading to the blind people. It now has grown into this national and it's more of a national service because I think it, it is intended mostly to serve citizens of the United States. Interesting, of course, Alexander Graham Bell was, was a great Canadian and uh, I learned about this through, uh, through a, fr a friend or a friend of a friend who's blind and uh -huh. said to me, I can order any book I want. He's Canadian. And so, so, so we are international. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and they'll send it to me. Oh. Uh, this uh, tape, or you know, whatever it might happen to uh -huh. be. Yeah, tape, tape, book. I think it was. Well, uh, and and the technology is changing. From I mean, they're the audio books. They've gone from braille to audio. And uh, now they'll be able. I assume they'd be able to come to the Library of Congress site and click and hear the but hear the audio. Oh, absolutely. Uh, as and opposed to then having to go through the mail right. system. Yeah. Uh -huh.
part of it, your, your mandate is obviously to make the stuff available to, to the general public in the states and around the world, but that's just such a, a whole new area of like, enormous work, just basically well, that's true. Access, uh, providing access. But, but with the, the new technology, it, it seems to me, you'll be able to, to provide this to huge audiences uh, that they never, ever been able to provide it to before, which well, makes it so exciting, I imagine. Well, it's true, uh, but there's another element, and that is, for example, if we, in sharing the collections, uh, we are training teachers about our websites. Teaching them how to access the stuff? Well, yeah, and how to use it in their lesson plans. Right. I mean, and so when we digitize a collection, it's not, it's more than just digitizing it. If it's the Alexander Graham Bell papers, you know, there will be, you go on the website, actually it's probably not a good example, but the George Washington papers or the Thomas Jefferson papers, not only can you download every item in the Washington or the Lincoln or the Jefferson papers, another example would be Matthew Brady. He's 1100 kind of excruciating to, to look at, excruciating um, photos of Civil War casualties, but you could download all 1,100 of those if you wanted to from your home computer, but you also would get a lesson plan about the Civil War if you're a teacher, how to use these photos. You also would get training if you were in one of our training programs. You would come here? You come here. We have a workshop for teachers, for teachers. each year you know, on using the Library of Congress's yeah. collections online, but we also have the outreach to the states that something like the Center for the Book would do and reach out and helping people understand what's here is we have 10 million items of our collections are available online but our collections as I said were about 140 and digitizing is terribly expensive uh, and we're trying to be selective in what we do there's that there's the a selectivity of course objectivism stuff coming in again but something like the National Book Festival is an attempt again at a different kind of outreach you know to identify a broad public audience we're so many things to so many different people but one of the areas where we've not been as strong is in K through 12 I mean we I hope we changed the rules but in the olden days you couldn't even come in the library if you were under high school age and oh, you could, it's too noisy well, or sure. too messy. Yeah. <laughs> so now it turns out online one of our major audiences is with the help of teachers is kids, K through 12. Center for the Book promotes books and literacy and reading largely among young readers. The times are changing and that's the library is trying to, to change with them and it's through a combination of public outreach programs like the National Book Festival and the State Book Festivals and the State Centers and the American Folklife Center is another is a wonderful organization except it also collects Folklife. It's a huge collection. Folklife? Folklife. Oral history. Oral history. Uh, yeah. Songs. Folk songs. Woody Guthrie. If you go out here, Pete you'll Seeger. see Pete Seeger, Pete Alan, Seeger. Alan Lomax. I mean, all of them. Some of that came in on deposit, copyright, but a lot of it didn't, and so we have ways to purchase. I mentioned we're 90% government. I'm trying to think what our appropriation is. It's over $640 million a year from Congress. Uh, that's 90%. The other 10% comes from something we Jim Billington set up called the Madison Council. And these are business community donors. They And mostly it's for acquisitions of items that we don't want to spend government money on, or at least we don't want to tell the Congress to go with this. Why are you spending $10 million for a map? So we get <laughs> You won't have to, don't have to explain, don't have to explain it so. quite yeah. as much. Yeah. But uh, it's important that we 
be seen as basically a function of the Congress and of the government. And our name will never be changed. In the past, in this century, there have been those who suggested that if Congress won't change the name to the National Library, that maybe National Library could at least be a subtitle, that Library of Congress, the National Library of the United States. No. So that's a good thing in one sense, and that means that Congress does see us as their library. But it also uh, makes it a little more difficult to explain that behind this thing called the Library of Congress, you've got all of these functions and all of this whole range of activity that's going on that reaches into so many different worlds. I mean, the world of geography and cartography is a lot different from the world of music and, and of art and architecture and of... Uh, you know, as you said before, it seems like we're documenting thought, aren't we? That's right. That's right. The specialists in the library are really people, and you asked me earlier, why do some people stay so long? Well, part of it is <laughs> if you have a specialized interest, I mean, you're in heaven for all, in a lot of these... You're the, getting paid to do you're getting you're paid. Yeah, I mean, of course. I mean, and I'm one of those. I'm guilty of that. But the map people are guilty of it. And yeah. So it, we all have our this, these wonderful enthusiasms and this opportunity to learn and to share. And you have a whole group of colleagues that you're... I mean, I belong... To, I mean, you know, librarians have their groups and map people have theirs. And I came in the Great Hall on a Saturday when I had some family here and there were all these little I heard nothing but violins and we were having a meeting of a group the music division was hosting the violin makers of the world at their world convention and that day there were little stands set up with all of the technical people and they were all showing this and the place was, it was just a wonderful sound and I said well that's even a surprise to me and I'm out there touting all these little worlds at the library. At least quiet, quiet books. <laughs> and, of course, we have the chamber music concerts and the Bob Hope collection, and etc. I'm going right. on. John Cole is the director of the Center for the Book in the Library of Congress and also a historian. Right. I write about history and its culture. And you've worked for the library for... 40 years. It came as a young administrative intern in 1966.